The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Years ago when I decided to leave my law profession and pursue pastoral ministry, I created a file in my file cabinet and labeled that folder encouragement. Inside, I put cards and printouts of encouragements that people gave me as I began to walk down the path of becoming a pastor and just encouragements that people gave me in life. I don't exactly recall what prompted me to create this folder, but perhaps I sensed that the days ahead would be difficult and that someday I might need encouragement to keep going. It's certainly not a complete file. Over the years, I haven't been as diligent as I once was to keep up that folder, but from time to time, I've slipped additional notes inside. Looking back, there are notes I wish I would have kept. Ones that might be more encouraging now than they were even when they were written. But in recent years, far more encouragements have been spoken. It would be impossible to put them all in this folder, even though it's already a thick folder. And these encouragements that people have given me exist only in my fading memory. Regardless, it's been many years since I opened up that folder to actually read the notes inside. But as I was writing this sermon, I remembered the folder and I pulled it from my file cabinet. I only read a handful of the notes, but I was looking for something in those notes that I thought I would find, and sure enough, I found it. The thing that I was looking for was not any particular note, but a particular phrase that I thought would be in there. And it was. Over and over again, I read in those notes words to the effect of, I'm praying for you. Person after person took the time to tell me they were praying for me as I set off on this journey to become a pastor. Those words, I'm praying for you, are some of the most encouraging words we ever hear, aren't they? Especially when we're going through a trial or a difficult time. They're words of comfort, words of hope, words that cheer our hearts. When someone tells you that they're praying for you, it's an expression of their care and concern for you. They might not be able to help you in any other way, but they are willing to do for you the best that they can do for you. To go before the Sovereign Lord who is our fortress and our refuge and our strength and our provider and to intercede on your behalf. When someone tells you that they're praying for you, it's also an expression of their ministry to you. It gives you hope that God Himself cares about your condition and that He will see you through somehow, some way. And since it's so encouraging to hear that someone is praying for us, I suppose it's not surprising at all to find that Paul, whose ministry of prayer was unparalleled, told believers so often in his letters that he had been praying for them. He not only prayed for them, 
but he told them by letter that he prayed for them in a time when writing a letter was expensive and difficult to send. If we surveyed Paul's letters, we would see this again and again, that he told those he loved that he prayed for them. But we don't need to look any further than his letters to the Thessalonians. In his first letter to that church, 1 Thessalonians, he opened with these words in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you. He did it, but He also told them that He did that. Later in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, He says, What thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He not only prayed that way, but he told this church that he prayed that way. Paul didn't stop praying for this church. He practiced what he preached, just as he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. He kept the believers, especially in Thessalonica, in his prayers. Now, several months after sending his first letter, Paul sent a second letter to the church. The threats that the church had faced when he wrote to them the first time had only grown worse. And so Paul wrote to encourage and comfort them. And one of the ways he did this was by, once again, telling them how he prayed for them. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where Paul records how he prayed for this persecuted, suffering church. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we've learned in our previous studies, Paul was grateful to God for this church's spiritual health despite the persecution and affliction they continually faced. He said in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He recognized that this church suffered greatly because of their faith in Christ. And so in verses 5-10, to Paul comforted the persecuted church by reminding them of God's righteous judgment. That their oppressors, their persecutors, would receive judgment for their wickedness. 
and that the believers there would one day receive relief when Christ returns. In the meantime, until that day came, until Christ came again in His second coming, Paul prayed for them. He recognized that one of his primary spiritual duties was to pray on behalf of the church he loved. In his two letters, there are no less than nine passages where Paul prays for the church or records his prayers for the church. All of these prayers were meant to encourage the suffering believers in Thessalonica. That was Paul's aim in verses 11 and 12 as well. Paul wrote to encourage them with his report of how he prayed for God's continued work in and through their lives. As Paul begins, you can't help but notice the fervency of Paul's prayers for this church. He writes again in verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you. He was constant in his prayers for them. Whenever he thought of the believers at Thessalonica, and he thought of them often, he prayed for them. They were never far from his heart. He had not forgotten about them. He and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, had often wanted to return to the church because of their love for them and minister to them again. But their desires had been thwarted. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, but since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Though he couldn't go to them, he could go to God in prayer on their behalf. And that's what he did. His ability to teach them was limited by distance and restricted by his absence. But his ability to pray for them was boundless. He could go to God in prayer anytime, Anywhere. And he did. If in his absence there was any doubt about his love for them, his prayer life proved his love. He gave them the best of what he had. His service of prayer to the God who answers prayer. Paul evidently thought of prayer like an investment. He invested time in prayer for those he loved knowing that this investment would return abundant fruit. And so he prayed to the God who could help them. Now there's something about Paul's prayers that often goes unnoticed, but that is a remarkable feature of his prayer life. Once you see it, you see it everywhere in his letters. What characterizes Paul's prayers as much as anything else is how God-centered they are. Again and again, the focus of Paul's petitions is for God to act in and through His people. I can't help but contrast this with how many Christians pray for people. God, I pray that my wife and I would be reconciled and that my kids would be saved and that I would get the project done on time, and that my parents would get over their sicknesses. Amen. Those are fine prayers to pray about. 
Nothing wrong with any of those. We ought to pray for those kinds of things. Yet I simply want to call your attention to the fact that in each of those prayers, the prayer focused on the people themselves with the people being the actors in the prayers. But judging by the prayers in Paul's letters, he seemed to have prayed primarily another way. His prayers focused first on God with God primarily being the actor. Let me give you a few examples just from First and Second Thessalonians, though I could show you this from any of Paul's letters. In his thanksgiving, Paul was radically God-centered. We see this, for example, in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. His gratitude was vertical. In his requests, he was God-centered. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, Notice he didn't pray, God, I pray I'd be able to get to the Thessalonica soon. Though he certainly could have prayed that way. Wouldn't have been wrong to pray that way. But that's not the way he prayed. In his intercession, he was God-centered. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Notice he didn't pray, God, I pray that the church would be sanctified completely. He could have prayed that way. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to pray that way. It's just not the way he prayed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And you can observe the God-centeredness of His prayer in verses 11 and 12 as well. We pray that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again, even in these Two short verses, Paul is God-centered as he intercedes for this church. Praise on their behalf. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to pray, God, I pray that so-and-so would do such-and-such. You could pray that way and be just as God-centered in your heart as Paul is here. I don't mention this in order to police the words of your prayers. 
It's true that most of the examples I just gave you are benedictions, so we'd expect these prayers to take an orientation toward God in their intercession. But I'm simply observing that Paul is more explicitly God-centered in his prayers than today's average evangelical. Of course, the way that Paul prayed didn't minimize the need for believers to work out their salvation. It didn't minimize the need for them to do work. In his exhortations, he called on believers to do as they ought, even as he called upon God to do the work through them. But in Paul's prayers, his emphasis was on the work of God in the lives of God's people. In the words of Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He took that, Philippians 2.13, seriously when he prayed. He didn't just pray that the people would do right. He prayed that the God who works in through His people would grant their obedience. So Paul focused his prayers on God. This God-centeredness in his prayers, I believe, reflects the God-centeredness of his life. He understood that since God is the most God-centered being in the universe, then his prayers ought to be formed around that God-centeredness. And so Paul prayed that God would act in the lives of these believers. These believers were suffering and they needed encouragement, so Paul told them how he prayed to God on their behalf. And in doing so, Paul provides us with an example of how to pray for suffering believers that we know. How should you pray for believers who are suffering? Sometimes we struggle to know what to pray for. Other times we prayed so much that we don't know what else to pray for. But in this passage, we find three God-centered ways to pray for suffering believers. First, pray that God would sanctify them. He writes in verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling. Paul asks that God would make these believers worthy of God's calling. What does he mean by calling? What calling does he have in mind? In Scripture, theologians distinguish between two kinds of callings. The external call of salvation, also known as the general call. And the internal call of salvation, also known as the effectual call. The external call is the proclamation of the Gospel to sinners, whereby sinners are called upon to come to Christ. It's the preaching of the Gospel. The sharing of the Gospel. An external call. Come to Jesus. That's a call that can be resisted. Sinners may reject the Gospel. Not everyone who hears the Gospel comes to saving faith. But the internal call, again, also known as the effectual call, is God's work of regeneration in the heart of a sinner whereby He summons a sinner from death to life. This is a call that is irresistible. When He calls, 
they always come. All whom God calls come to saving faith without exception, just as Paul explains in Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. How are we justified? Through saving faith. Declared righteous before God. Through the righteousness of Christ. And we receive that through faith in Christ. So those He called, He justifies. And those He justifies, He glorifies. Brings all the way home. None are lost along the way. This internal call is vividly illustrated in Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verse 43, Christ called out to Lazarus who was dead and who was in a tomb. And He said, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus immediately rose to life and came out of the tomb. Jesus called and He came. The man was dead. Jesus called and He rose to life. Jesus spoke the dead man's life into existence. Likewise, God calls dead sinners to new life in Christ. When Jesus calls, the sinners are raised to life. They're given new life in Christ. Their hearts are regenerated. This divine call is what Paul refers to here. This calling is that of salvation and that of God. Paul knew this church in Thessalonica well. He planted this church. He was their first pastor. Many of the believers had come to saving faith under his ministry there. And so he knew this was a saved church. They had put their faith in Christ alone for salvation. They had received that internal call. But they needed to continue to live up to that high calling even as they endured affliction. That's why he prays that God would make them worthy of their calling. The word worthy doesn't mean that God would make them deserving of their salvation as if they could earn it. That's never been true. Rather, it's a word that means fitting or proper or appropriate. Paul prayed that God would so work in these believers that they would continue to live in a way consistent with their identity as God's chosen people. People who have been redeemed by Christ. Those of us who have been redeemed by Christ ought to live much differently than the world. Ought to live much differently than in our past life. If we don't, we weren't saved. It's that simple. In other words, when Paul prayed, he prayed that their present condition would match their past calling. This is a frequent theme in Paul's letters where he urges believers to make sure their conduct matches their confession. For example, he writes in Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's virtually identical to verse 11. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Do that, he told the church in Ephesus. Or in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 
We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We prayed for you so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Or in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel. Let it fit the great grace of the Gospel so that the way you live demonstrates that you have been changed by God Himself. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he had taught them that they must live in a manner worthy of their calling. This was part of what you might call Paul's curriculum when he went to a a new city and people came to saving faith. What did he teach those new believers? Well, in a sense, he taught them, in a summary sense, he taught them to live in a manner worthy of their new calling. And he wrote to this church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, He wrote, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. He reminded the church, see, I I taught you this. When I was with you, I taught you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so in the same way Paul previously exhorted them in person, he continued to pray that for them. Not all the believers in Thessalonica were walking worthily of their salvation. As we study this letter further, we'll find that some were idle. Some were disobedient believers in the church who had become a burden on the church and really a reproach in the city. For example, Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 6, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And then he said, verse 11, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. These were professing believers in the church who refused to work. Though they had the ability to do so, they became dependent upon the church, always seeking a handout, but refusing to work as they ought. Paul says, have nothing to do with them. There is great temptation when we suffer to live as we please or to excuse our sin because we have suffered. And the whole church in Thessalonica suffered. It's a natural impulse, not a Spirit-filled impulse, to live selfishly or to seek our own fulfillment when we suffer affliction. But Paul prayed that God would grant them to live in a way that was worthy of their salvation. Even in the midst of suffering, God can cause a believer to mature spiritually. In fact, this is often how God grants spiritual growth. Through suffering. In the midst of suffering. Because of suffering. And so he prayed for their sanctification. Second, For suffering believers, we should pray that God would empower them. Pray that God would empower them. 
Paul continues in verse 11, we always pray for you that our God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Now notice this prayer request has two parts. The first part is for their inner desires. The second part is for their outward actions. The word resolve in this first part refers to the intentions or desires of the heart. Our hearts have ambitions. Our hearts have purposes. These desires of the heart can be good or bad, but Paul prays that God would fulfill every resolve for good. Likewise, he prays that God would fulfill, in the second part, every work of faith. That's a phrase that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, where he acknowledged that their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus was bearing fruit. Work of faith means the work that faith produces. Works that result from faith. A true faith will produce works that please God. We know that from Paul's other writings. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in likeness for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why we've been saved. We've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, but we've been saved unto the good works that God has prepared us to walk in. You ought to pray that way. Pray that way in the morning. God, help me to do the good works which You have prepared beforehand for me to do this day. That's why you've been saved. In fact, James tells us that if works don't follow faith, then our faith isn't real. It's dead. James 2.26 As the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved to do good works in obedience to God. And Paul prayed that God would fulfill these good works in the lives of these believers Notice, by His power. There's the God-centeredness of this prayer once again. Neither good resolves nor good works that please God can be accomplished without the empowering work of God. Both good intentions and good actions need God's power to bring them to fulfillment. Sometimes suffering believers can't see how God could possibly use them to do anything. They feel too broken, too hurt, too weak, too wounded to be useful in the kingdom of God. And that's even more reason to pray for them. Even as they suffer, we can pray that God would use suffering believers to do mighty works that are birthed in their hearts. So pray that God would empower them.
Finally, for suffering believers, pray that God would glorify Christ's name through them. Paul writes in verse 12 that the purpose of these first two requests would be so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays for what we might call a double glorification. That the name of Christ, the name of Christ being all that Christ represents, all that He is, and everything that He is, that the name of Christ would be glorified in His saints as they trust and obey Him, and that His saints would be glorified in Him. Because of their union with Christ, they would receive honor as well. Christ deserves to be worshipped in the fullness of His splendor. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So He should be worshipped in the fullness of that majesty. And there is coming a day when we will glorify Him with perfection. No longer will our worship be stained with our sin. But we will give Him the worship He deserves. But Paul prayed that the believers in Thessalonica would glorify Christ even while they suffered. When in our suffering we live in a way worthy of our calling and serve Him with the strength that God supplies, we magnify Christ as the worthy Savior that He is, and He is glorified in our suffering. It's notable that Paul doesn't mention praying for their deliverance from persecution. That would be something reasonable to pray for, and it might even comfort the believers to hear that Paul prayed that way. But he doesn't comfort them with the hope that they'll avoid persecution. In this life, the way God advances His kingdom is rarely by removing affliction entirely. Rather, He advances His kingdom most often by sustaining His people as they endure suffering. He is magnified by sustaining them in their weakness. In our weakness. Rather than allowing us to live in such a way that we feel like we don't need God. Yet sometimes suffering believers can't understand how God could be glorified in all their misery. They see so much pain. So much of life wrecked. So much of life undone in such a way that it can never be the same again. They can only see darkness and not light. But God has the power to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. He has the power to bring light into darkness. Even in these dark days. Better still, in the future, Christ will be glorified in His saints and His saints will be glorified in Him. We will share in His glory because we've been united to Him by faith. This is a hope greater than a momentary reprieve of affliction. A little respite now. In the time scale of eternity, light momentary afflictions prepare us for an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. And so Paul prayed that God would glorify Christ's name through these suffering believers, and we should as well. So Paul demonstrates how to pray for suffering believers. We should pray that God would sanctify them, empower them, and glorify Christ's name through them. Let this be a model for how you pray. Use Paul's pattern here in these verses to guide your own prayers for those who are suffering and who trust Christ. You can even pray for yourself in this way. These are prayers that are always relevant for every believer, no matter the circumstance. No matter whether you are presently suffering affliction. But this passage is also a model for us in another way. It's a reminder that we can encourage others by telling them that we've prayed for them. What a blessing it is to have friends who lift you up to God in prayer. What a blessing. There are few encouragements greater than to know someone has prayed for you, especially a close friend. People outside the church and those only loosely connected with any fellowship of the church can hardly know this blessing. But hearing those words, I'm praying for you, is one of God's special means of helping us endure trials. So consider whether there is someone in your life who would benefit from hearing that you have kept them in prayer. Of course, you can't tell them that if you haven't been praying for them, so start there. Be frequent in your intercessory prayer for your loved ones. But if you are praying for them, then your prayers and your encouragement that you have been praying for them may be the means by which God sustains their faith in trying times. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the many examples in Paul's letters and indeed the rest of Scripture of faithful prayer. And we ask that You would find us faithful in prayer as we take others to You, lift others up to You for their needs as well as our own. Lord, let us be frequent in the prayers of intercession. Let our loved ones never be far from our hearts, far from our lips in prayer. And Father, help us from time to time, not excessively, but from time to time, Tell others that we're praying for them and let that be an encouragement to our hearers. Lord, we look forward to the day when we're glorified with You and live with You in a new heaven and new earth for all eternity. But until that time, in Your wisdom, You have ordained that we be afflicted in this world. And we ask that You would sustain us Help us to glorify You. Empower us for Your service. And we pray that we would be sanctified even in difficult days. 
We ask these things for Your glory and in the name of Your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.